0: Good morning. How are you guys doing today? I got a little prop, as you can tell. I remember when I first got married just a few years ago, just a few years ago, <clears throat> uh, we would go to homes that uh, knew my wife. They had been married for quite some time, and I remember when we'd go into their homes, we would sort of evaluate, you know, things they had and things we didn't have, but because we were newlyweds and I was still in college trying to earn my, my undergrad degree in religion so I could get on to seminary. And she was the only one working full-time, and I was part-time in a very small church as a student pastor. We didn't have a lot of things, and so I, I always envisioned us having what other people had. And one of the things that some of her friends had were those things called a refrigerator with ice coming out of the door. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I remember when those things came out, and then I remember when actually they also included water in those things, and now they include filtered water and filtered ice. And if you don't have one of those, you're not living in the lap of luxury, as far as I was concerned when I was younger. And uh, we bought one of those really cheap, you know, sort of inexpensive Sears um, Whirlpool things and thought it would last only a little while, but that thing lasted over 20 years. To My dismay And if you know anything about me I wear things out before I buy them That's why my car has over 250,000 miles on it And it's 10 years old And I have yet to buy a new car And Bob is probably laughing Because he's trying to get me into one of his vehicles Over there, where he is And anyway, when I get wealthy I'll buy me one of those new vehicles, Bob So I just thought I'd let you know So anyway <clears throat> So uh, filtered water is something that we all drink You should drink filtered water, right? No? You should not drink filtered water Water is water But some water has Things in them And those things Sometimes are not good for our bodies And I like to drink filtered water Now you can drink whatever water you want But I like filtered water And it's supposed to take 99.9% Out of all that, that impure, impurity stuff You know all those chemicals And all of those things in water But when I'm away uh, You know, sometimes filtered water is not something you can find, so I always buy filtered water in a bottle. Now, I'm not sure if it's really good for you because it's in a plastic container, which I'm told also can cause cancer, but nevertheless, it's what's available. And they claim that it's 99.9% free of pollutants. Now, we know that it's not spring water. We know that it's tap water coming out of some spring somewhere in Iowa that by the time it trickles down to wherever it is it's tap water (laughs) but it does go through a filter system supposed to before it goes into a bottle are you skeptical about these things a bunch of skeptical people but it makes me feel good so i'm gonna buy it and i'm sure some of you do too so I'm going to open this bottle that, that I brought today, and uh, I'm going to put it in this Krispy Cream cup that I have. Now, this is a rite of passage. It was given to me by David Harper. I got this when I got my concealing carry. Thankfully, I was able to do that because of the financial gift I got from the men in this church who not only gave me money to get a, a, a handgun, but gave me also money to get my concealing carry. That's the kind of guys we have here in our church. Now, when your men give you that kind of thing, you need to be weary of the people you're pastoring. Okay? So when I got my concealing carry and I passed my test and I got mine, David Harper gave this to me, and every staff member that has one has a concealing carry, and it's a rite of passage. And so Mark has one. He's one of our new staff members. And there are some who kind of joke about the the pistol-packing pastors of Emmanuel Baptist Church. I don't have one on at the moment. So, don't worry. But anyway, so this was my rite of passage. And I brought this today because you can't see through it. And it's clean. Trust me. It is clean. And thankful, uh, I'm thankful for Angela who cleans it almost every day before I get to the office so that, uh, you know, the residue from past coffee in here is not there. So, it is clean. And so, because the cup is clean and the water is pure, I'm going to put it in here. And we're going to assume that this 99% water... It's pollutant-free in a clean cup, but you can't see it, can you? But you saw me pour it. You saw me open the bottle. You saw the clean cup. So we're assuming that this is clean. Now, let's say that I take this right here, which you're not sure what substance this is, but it looks like dirt, right? And let's say I put this in my cup. Now, would you now consider this water to be clean? Does it have anything in it that's not water? Right. Can you see it, though? You can't see it. Here's the analogy. In Jesus' day, there were some religious elitists who were claiming to have pure lives. Not 99.9% pure, but 100% pure. And they did a lot in order to project their righteousness so that you could only see that which they were projecting. And as you looked at their life, that projection that they projected because of all the things that they did, you would then conclude and assume that they were then righteous men of God. But the reality is that inside of their hearts, like inside of this cup, there was anything less than 100% righteousness. There was a defilement. There were impurities. There was uncleanliness. There were things that were here. But if you were to look at it from where you are, you would just say, you know, that, that's a clean cup. There's clean water in there. Surely they must be righteous and surely they must be clean. Did you know that we still have that kind of religious elitism today? Those of us who project a self-righteousness so that others, as they evaluate our lives, draw the conclusion that we must be righteous because there are certain things that we do and certain things that we avoid doing. Yet the whole time, while we may project that kind of exterior righteousness on the inside, our lives are filled with impurities. Impurities that often go unhidden, that they go unnoticed, they go hidden and unseen by just a quick glance. And so people assume that we must be righteous because we have our righteousness is visible. And yet, it's not. And Jesus is talking about that in these attitudes that he's addressing, in these six heartstrings that he's wanting to address in the lives of not only those who are self righteous, but also those who have a desire to be his disciples. He's wanting them not to focus on the exterior, but he's wanting them to focus on the interior. The impurities, the sin, the things that are displeasing to God inside, in the heart. So that by addressing those, you are not simply righteous in projecting righteousness, but you have a genuine righteousness that comes from inside, from the heart, from the mind, from the emotions, from the attitudes that reflect a genuine righteousness that God came to give through Jesus. And so I want to talk about that. We've talked about anger, we've talked about retaliation, and today we're going to talk about this very important subject called lust. And we would think that in the church, there's not a need or there's there's not a necessity for us to address this important subject, but the reality is there is. Because as we're going to see this morning, lust affects every single one of us. Now, before we go to the next slide, I want to define three things for you. I want you to write down these these three things. We're going to define three words. So get out a piece of paper and a pencil or maybe your notes that are there. And I want us to start with three definitions. First of all, I want us to start with the word adultery. Adultery. I think everyone in here would probably be safe to conclude that everyone in here understands and knows what adultery means. Adultery is virtually the consent for two people who are married to become involved emotionally and physically in an extramarital affair. It is someone or it is two groups of people who, um, let's give me the definition, they act as an act of unfaithfulness in marriage with someone who is married. It is an act of unfaithfulness in marriage with someone who is married. Now, it might be one person who's married and another person who's not, or it might be a, a lady who's married and a man who's not, or it might be two people who are married to, to two other people, and they come together, and they are unfaithful in that marriage. And I'm convinced that adultery is not just a physical thing, it's also an emotional thing. And so they connect physically and emotionally Outside of the framework of their marriage the second definition that I want to look at is a word called fornication Because I think we're going to see in this text as we begin to talk about lust and adultery and what it leads to That many of us have this concept this idea that Jesus in our text this morning is only talking about adultery And therefore if I'm not married I'm immune to what the pastor is about to say and what Jesus says in this text But the reality is in this text, Jesus is talking about sexual immorality, not just adultery, but any sexual immoral act that we may do in the heart and outside of the heart. And so fornication is a huge aspect about what Jesus is saying in this text. And fornication is simply a sexual relationship between two people who are not married. So if you're not married today, it doesn't mean that you're immune or excluded from the words that Jesus is about to address to us in regard to being sexually or morally pure. For the married and unmarried alike, these words not only are true for us as Christ's disciples, but they have tremendous impact into our lives. And then the last and third and final definition I want us to look at is the word lust. The word lust simply means to set one's heart towards something to set one's heart towards something it is a longing for it is a desire it is a covetousness it is an act that follows in time after the action of looking with intent with purpose and with longing it is a desire it is a long look it is a lustful look it is always depicted in the concept of evil, of sin, and of violating the standards and the precepts of God. So we have three words, three definitions, adultery, fornication, and lust. So that includes basically all of us this morning in the words of Jesus. So what does Jesus say then in this text about our being pure of heart? Well, let's take, first of all, the pure heart, first of all, is... And must start and it must begin then with the right definition. A pure heart is tuned with the right definition. You always must start with the right definition because if we have a wrong interpretation or wrong understanding of of what it means to to become involved in adultery or fornication or to become involved in lustful desires and thoughts. If for whatever reason we redefine those, then we're not going to be able to be pure as Jesus would have us to be pure. Now, let me say this before we start. This is not just a young adult problem. Are you ready, senior adults? This is not just a young adult problem. I had a a, a really great guy. He was a deacon in my church uh, that I pastored several years ago. Not the last one and not even the one before that, beyond that, so you can't figure out who it is (laughs) or where he lived. And we were on a hospital visitation. And this guy's close to 90 And uh, we're in the car And we're about to turn into the hospital And I remember Ed was in the car with me And he's a a gracious, godly Wonderful man And as we're at the stoplight There is a young lady who walks by In a very, very Very short dress And incredibly Good looking That's all I'm going to say And um, I was a younger man at the time, and uh, I was looking away because there was a gentle breeze, and the skirt was moving, and uh, I wasn't going to look. And I looked over to Ed, and he was not looking the other way. And I, as his pastor, decided I would chide him. I said, Ed, you're not supposed to be looking. And he said, "Pastor, the body may not work like it used to, but the mind sure does. You know, you may not act upon what you think, but you can still think and have issues. And it's not a young adult problem. It's just not for teenagers. I mean, we did a wedding yesterday. Uh, Brother David and and Miss Carol got married. They're acting like teenagers down in the wedding and." they're almost 80 years old and they're so much in love and so love is for not just young people but even elderly people and it's it's a problem and it's a thing that we all deal with whether we're young or whether we're old and i think it's something as a disciple of christ we need to make sure that in the definition of what we're describing that we understand clearly the words of jesus and he begins by saying you heard or you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, it's interesting enough that Jesus is laying a foundation for those he's addressing. The foundation is found in Exodus twenty fourteen. It is the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And that's the foundation that he's about to lay the principle before his disciples and those who are standing before him who are claiming a self-righteousness while the whole time on the inside they have been guilty of lust and adultery in their hearts. And so he's laying the foundation by quoting the seventh commandment found in Exodus 20, 14. You shall not commit adultery. And he said, you have heard, there's been a proclamation. And here's the proclamation that they have heard. They have taken the principles and the standard of God, and they have quantified it this way. They have said, as long as you don't commit the act, God's not too concerned about what you feel, see, think, or hear. Just don't act upon your emotions. Just don't act upon your thoughts. Don't act upon your desires. Don't act upon your passions. And as long as you keep those under check, you're okay, and it will not affect your relationship with God. And God doesn't consider the things that you think or the things that you see, the things that you feel, or the desires that you covet, really wrong at all, as long as you don't act upon them. And that was the practice. And Jesus is reminding him of that practice. He's saying there's been a proclamation that as long as you don't act upon that, what you feel, think, or see, or desire, even though it's evil, lustful, and wrong, it can't hurt you, and it does affect, doesn't affect your relationship with God. And Jesus says here, wrong. It does. Turn with me to John chapter, um, John chapter 7. Beginning with verse 53. Just leave this on the screen here. Turn your Bibles there. I want to take a look at this interesting example. I think the Pharisees and the scribes, the people that were proclaiming this and encouraging the people to practice this, understood deep down in their hearts that what they were practicing and what they were preaching was, in essence, not true. How do you know that? Here's an interesting illustration, and we've used this here before, but here's a, an illustration I find kind of interesting in this subject. Notice chapter 7, last verse, verse 53. We're going to move into verse 1 of chapter 8 in just a moment and go all the way down to 11. Notice what happens in 7.53. And they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, notice that, the scribes and the Pharisees, who are we addressing throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount? The scribes and the Pharisees. Now notice that. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? Did you know that adultery brought about the judgment of death? If you were caught cheating on your spouse or cheating with someone else's spouse, you would die. Plain and simple. Did you know that if you were a young man or a young woman and you were caught in the act of fornication, you could also die? And if you were a young man who took advantage of a virgin and had sexual relationship with her, you were forced to marry her. And by law, you could never divorce her. And even in, the, in Deuteronomy 22, we see that if you're a man and you rape a woman, you would die. Those are serious consequences when someone is committing the act of either fornication or adultery. And so these scribes and these Pharisees clearly understand the law, and they're claiming we have not committed adultery, but this woman has committed adultery. And it's amazing to me, where's the dude that was with her? <laughs> They completely exonerate him and let him go. They should have brought both, in my personal opinion. But they only dragged the woman. And it's interesting, even in our society today, we have a tendency to blame the woman more than we blame the man. And in some circles, we excuse men, and we have standards that are different for women than we do for men. That's that's baloney. The standard of God is for men and women young men and young women as well as it is for all of us who are men and women and so they throw this lady out there she's scantily dressed and said what do we do now notice what happens next verse 6 this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him jesus went down and wrote with his finger on the ground and as they continued to ask him they persisted they would not relent they would not release him they wouldn't let him go he finally stood up and said to them let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her what's he saying i believe he's saying if you're here accusing her of adultery you who have never committed adultery be the first to cast a stone what happens and notice what happens And as they continued to ask him, Let him who without sin among you be the first to cast the stone. Notice what it says now in verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elder ones first. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Why did they drop their stones and why did they walk away? If they had not committed the act themselves... Of adultery in their hearts. You see, I'm convinced these Pharisees and these scribes, they knew what the law said. But in order to justify themselves, in order to present themselves in this righteous position so that others can ooh and ah over their acts and over their conduct, They redefined, they reinterpreted the law so that they could claim then to have measured up to the righteousness that God desires and God deserves. And based upon that, they allowed sin to exist in their hearts. What is the right definition? What is the right practice? Well, let's take a look at the words of Jesus. We see the right definition. Let's look at the right discipline. Jesus gives us a definition adultery is committed in the heart and with that committal of the heart we need to understand that there's a discipline of the heart that is that is desperately required and in this discipline we see that we are not to linger at all in this whole concept of lust The discipline is that as soon as you recognize and realize that you are lusting after something or after someone that is not in accordance to the will of God and it violates the standard of God, you must resist and you must run as quickly as possible. Don't linger there very long. Don't feed the desire. Run. Stop. Notice what he says in the verse, verse 28. But I say to you. That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is setting a new standard. Anyone who looks, circle that word and write down this definition, that is to look with a long, with a lingering, with a desirous intent. It is not the first look, it is the second, the third, the fourth, and even the fifth. It's a prolonged look where you not only look at it, but you continue to look at it. And as you continue to look at it, you begin then to create desires, thoughts, intentions, motives, actions, not that you actually act upon, but ones you do in your heart and ones you do in your mind. And so he says that everyone who does that, who looks, at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. That is the heiress already. He has already been convicted. It is an accomplished fact. It is already a reality, and there is already the consequence of that sin being evident in your life. And notice where the source of the trouble is. Where is it? It's not in the eye. It's not in the mind. It's not in the one being lusted after because it's easy for us to accuse them. It's where? It's in the heart. Don't linger very long in desiring something that is outside of the will and the intent of God for your life that's causing that to be second place, to linger there very long, because if you do, you are already committing adultery in your heart, and the consequence of that sin will already then begin to be implemented in your relationship with this person, in the relationships you have with others, and in the relationship you have with God. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. Here's a man that didn't take this to heart. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Quickly, we're going to move through this text. Beginning with verse 1, 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Job and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained at jerusalem interesting that david doesn't go to battle he's not to blame more than likely they have excused him from battle because they don't want their king going into battle any longer uh he does succeed in this campaign and they have had many successes but what i think is interesting here and in, as we begin to study this whole context of david there's a thought that i had when i was reading this this morning is that david forgot what the real battle was You see, he he failed to recognize the true enemy. He thought the Amorites were the ones that were going to destroy and to devastate his kingdom. But the real enemy was Satan himself, who was going to do more havoc on his personal life and on his family life and in his kingdom than the Amorites could have ever done. Seriously. Seriously. And yet while he was mounting an offensive against the Amorites and these enemies that were physical that he could see, he forgot to mount an offense and a defensive against the spiritual enemy called Satan that he could not see. And here's what happens in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof. He was just mining in his own business. Many believe that he had the highest uh, place there in Jerusalem and the highest rooftop, and he could see over his kingdom. And probably more than likely, he got up and he was kind of surveying the kingdom and just kind of enjoying maybe the sunset or maybe enjoying the beautiful view of of the kingdom and just maybe even thanking God for it. Who knows? That then he saw from the roof a woman bathing should have stopped there no sin committed no foul committed no harm committed he unintentionally all of a sudden came upon someone who was bathing on a rooftop below his rooftop uh uh-oh and should have turned away but he doesn't do that and the woman it says was very beautiful why does it say that Because David lingered long enough not to just notice that she was bathing, but he then began to look long enough to desire her for himself. She was beautiful. And he admired her, and he lingered there, and he thought, and he felt, and he continued, and he lingered more than he should. Notice what happens, verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman. What a coward. He himself wouldn't go. He sent someone else to go for him to set up a rendezvous. And notice the one said, it is... Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Notice there's a warning here. Hey, David, you don't want to go there, man. She's married to one of your warriors, to one of your soldiers. But he doesn't pay any attention. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Both, I think, here are basically to blame she responded to the duty and he acted upon desire and now she had been purifying herself from uncleanliness then she returned to her house and they thought they got away with it but did they your sins will always find you out where did it start How did David, this incredible king who who is said to have had a heart for the Lord, the reason why God chose him over his predecessor, he had a heart for God and he was the choice that God had and God had been blessing him. Why would David do this? Well, notice the passage in James 1.14 on the screen. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Where do your thoughts take you? Where does your look take you? Where does your uncontrolled passions and desires, where can they take, you think you can watch pornography and the privacy of your own home behind a closed door on your computer and you think it's not going to have effect on your relationship with God, on your spouse, on your family and on your children, you are buying into a lie. You think that you can lust after someone, a coworker at at your company and sit there and look at them and, and find places where they are so that you can check them out. You think that's not going to affect your marriage or your family or your friends and your relationship with God. You are wrong. I had a pastor one time who told me. This is what he told me. He's a pastor. I was a student pastor. And we got to talking about how women are scantily dressed. This was several decades ago. You know what he had the gall to tell me in his office? He said... The reason they dress that way is because they want you to look and I look. You know what happened to him shortly after that? He left his wife from a woman who was married to someone else. He divorced his wife. He was no longer in ministry and he was out selling oil wells. There's a consequence to the choices that we make and what we think, what we see, what we hear and how we feel. You're not on an island. You're not isolated. And if you think that you can commit this in the privacy of your own heart, and it's not going to have an effect on your life, you are buying into the lie. Notice that it says in that text, the desire leads to a disguise that that is the result in this passage here, because we have been lured and we have been enticed. Satan is a liar. Sin lies. And yourself, you're a little selfish. you, You will lie to yourself and think there's nothing wrong with it, when in reality it will eventually spill over into your life, and it will wreck not only your relationship with God, but ruin your relationship with your family and with your faith community. We need to be disciplined. But not only disciplined, but I want you to notice a defensive. There's a great defensive that Jesus gives us. It's, it's, it's a pretty big way of putting up a defense, <laughs> Uh, and, and notice I want you to know that he's does not really saying that we should actually do this, but he's giving us an extreme because there's a drastic action that needs to be taken when we're being enticed and tempted to look where we shouldn't look and desire what God never intends for us to desire. Notice what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What's he saying? you got to take drastic measures. You can't play with sin you're not strong enough you're not smart enough you're not cunning enough Uh, that's a lie and sin temptation requires drastic measures and what he's saying if your eye causes you sin pluck it out throw it into fire what's he saying he's saying basically stop looking I think what he's saying here metaphorically he's saying when you came to faith in christ you died to what you're looking at your eye has been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ lives in me how can i look upon something that is lustful that is evil and that will ruin my relationship with god and my family when i've died to that so consider that which i look i look at I'm dead to that. I I shouldn't look at that. That not only brings death, but I've died to that. And I look the other way. I'm I'm blinded. And I, I can't look that way because I'm blinded by that. Not only am I blind, but I'm crippled. He says, if a right hand has caused you to sin, cut it off. He's saying to you, I, I, I really don't have any members that are mine in order to commit this act here. So, so as a result of that, they have been crucified. They've been given to Christ. I've cut them off. They're no longer mine. And as if I'm a crippled, and I, I can't go there. I can't do that. Why? Because my hands are not mine. My feet are not mine. My thoughts are not mine. They are his. And I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Consider yourself blind and crippled and dead to those things that the enemy is tempting and luring you and enticing you into sin. How do we do that? One last, one last example. I want us to go to Genesis 39. We're going to close with this. Genesis 39, beginning with verse 1. A man named Joseph Interesting fellow, Joseph. And and the reason I showed this as a last illustration, I think sometimes we think that, that men are usually the predators, but I'm convinced that not only here, but even today, there are women who are also predators. Notice what happens in verse 1, Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. Notice verse 2, though. The Lord was with Joseph. Don't overlook that. The Lord was with Joseph and became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. I think the first point that I find in this text, if you want to, put up a good defensive, you need to move with clarity. Move with incredible clarity, uh, an understanding that the Lord is with you. And it's the Lord that is blessing you. And Joseph is in the center of the will of God for his life. And somehow we have... Convinced ourselves, if I am in the center of God's will for my life, and I'm studying the Bible every day, and praying every day, and going to seminary, and pastoring, or whatever we're doing, then therefore I'm immune, I'm isolated from the temptations of the enemy, and that is far from the truth, that is a a, a position that if you hold, you're in danger right now of falling into sin. You can be in the center of God's will for your life presently powerfully standing duking it out with the enemy and he's blessing you and you think you're you're immune from temptation no notice what happens in the next verse we see now in verse six so he left all that he had had in Joseph's charge and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate now joseph was handsome in form and appearance in other words guys he was buff And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Who cast eyes on whom? She cast her eyes on him, not him on her. He was focused. He was concentrated on what God had called him to do. Now, I think maintaining the proper concentration is huge in in the light of overcoming temptation. But that's not going to make you immune either from temptations coming. Or he mobilized his commitment, then we see in verse 4, but he refused. He mobilized the commitment that he had to God. I can't do this. I reject, I refuse, I resist what you are putting before me. And notice he magnified the consequences in verse 8. Notice what he said to his master's wife. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not, he is not greater than in this house that I am nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God he magnified the consequences that's what Satan doesn't want us to see and understand when we're being tempted he doesn't want us to see the consequences of the decision that we're making. but it's only a thought it's only a desire it's only a third or a fourth look it's only in the privates of my home it's only on this television screen it's only in this movie I'm not impacted by that you need to magnify the consequences and maximize your convictions notice in verse 10 and as she spoke to Joseph day after day he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her Satan will come at you time and time again, but you must maintain the convictions of your heart and the convictions that you have in the Lord and not bow down to them no matter how many times they come. When do you finally gain victory over temptation? That's right, when you're dead. As long as you have eyes and ears and a mind and a heart and sight and life... Temptations are going to come. You, you, can, you, can, you can run to a, a mosque somewhere in the middle of nowhere and be completely isolated from the world and still in your heart sin. And notice he minimized the conflict. How did he do that? Verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment Sees the opportunity saying lie with me but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house drastic measures for drastic circumstances you can't feed it you can't play with it you can't overcome it on your own the only way to gain true victory is to run it's to run to run Don't put yourself in the circumstance or the situation where you're going to feed that temptation or that lustful desire or that thought or that passion. Do not do that because you're putting yourself closer to the temptation. Remove yourself, take drastic measures. I can't look at that because my eye has been crucified with Christ. My limbs are no longer mine, they're His. I can't act that way, I can't look that way, I can't think that way, I can't feel that way. And anything that comes between me and God should be dealt with drastically, swiftly, immediately, no matter how much it costs, no matter how painful it may be, no matter what emotional involvement and entanglement we have become involved in with, it must stop because the ultimate consequence is is not only will it affect my relationship with God, but it will affect my relationship with those that I care the most deeply about in my life. And lust has ruined many lives. The older I am in ministry, the more disappointed I am, and the men that I started with are no longer with us. It knows no boundaries. It has no limitations. It doesn't care who it affects and what the consequences are. Lust will destroy your life. And Jesus says, lust at its source begins in the heart. And until we correct the heart issue, we cannot correct the life issue. So, what about your heart? Is it... Looking pretty clean on the outside, but on the inside, it's not quite so pure, is it? So what needs to change? And what choice must you make? And what commitment should you make? Not just today, but from now on. Let's pray.